0: Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. In episode seven and episode eight of Turpentine VC, Chad Byers of Sousa and Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate both mentioned Roger Ehrenberg of IA Ventures. As the VC, they both highly respect and look to as the gold standard for seed investing. So I'm really excited to have Roger as our guest for today's episode we dive into his contrarian and opinionated view of how seed funds should operate and how that's allowed him to generate 10x fund returns. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe and leave us a review. And check out our companion newsletter, where we share the top three takeaways from each interview. Now, on to my conversation with Roger. Welcome to Turpentine VC. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Eric. Great to be here. So I just had Mike Maples on before you, and he unwittingly said that you're the investor he perhaps most admires because you said what you were going to do. You were very specific about what you were doing, what you were not doing, what you stood for, what you didn't stand for, and you didn't waver. And and you've had phenomenal results to show for it, I believe, you know, 10x funds. Why don't you talk about what that firm strategy was exactly? Sure. So... I
1: had this deeply held view that running a concentrated portfolio at seed and being ownership sensitive was ultimately the way to give yourself the best chance at outside success. And my goal was never to, uh, try and stamp out three X funds. It was to try and create discontinuity kind of maximum convexity in the portfolio. And rather than having a series of smaller, you know, option bets, it was really much more a function of both acknowledging that the most valuable resource that myself and my partners, Brad and Jesse had was time, really not, not money. And that we specifically focused on companies that sat at the intersection of what we perceived to be not well understood. And yet, if their hypotheses were correct, that there was a massive market opportunity that that was there for them, but at the same time where we felt our greatest value was in helping those founders design the experiments to determine product market fit. So we always would invest pre-product market fit. We're not providing scaling capital. We're providing, can this actually be a real business capital and can that then warrant additional money to peel back the layers of the onion to see, can you actually create a category defining company? And so
0: in 2023, do you think that strategy would still take hold? We've seen seed change a lot, right? Multi-stage firms have gotten into seed. There's a lot more capital um, Sam Lesson recently wrote, a, wrote that he thinks it's the end of seed, um, but he particularly thinks end of seed in terms of club deals. He thinks you can only do seed in the way you did it, which is contrarian uh, you know, and, and right. Um, how do you think about um, seed today with the rise of super angels, etc.? cetera? Do, do you think that strategy hold, holds up? I do. And I think
1: uh, very few firms do it. And it, why? Because it's it's hard. And it's putting you know, your eggs in a relatively narrow basket. And I think that makes most managers, especially first time fund managers, very uncomfortable. That what feels safe when one gets in a business is to tag along with demonstrably successful investors, or perhaps even more truthfully investors with bigger names and brands forgetting about success in the way that High-quality LPs measure success, notably DPI. Um, and I think it's it feels comfortable to be with the crowd because if you're wrong, everyone's wrong. And if everyone's right, you're right. So it's kind of a seemingly less risky strategy when one is trying to get in business and not screw up too big so you don't get A chance to even have a second fund. But the reality is to me, the risk is almost the exact inverse. The real risk, especially if you have LPs with any sophistication, is that if you're not taking true pre seed and seed stage risk, which means not just the companies, it means the ownership, the check size, and the conviction where you're going to actually allocate your scarce time. And the way that we talked about it at IA was really bending the curve. That if we didn't feel that we could bend the curve for a company in that pre-seed to seed stage as they're going through this kind of experimentation process and sprinting towards product market fit, then unclear whether or not we are really the the right investors for that company. And I would say today in my own investing, I still follow a similar strategy. So, which is all to say, Eric, I think that, and the data bears this out, one of the features of our favorite LPs was their willingness to share data with us on their (coughs) historical experience with managers across decades. And there is something about concentrated seed that occupies this unusual place in the, in the two by two, because you really, uh, you are taking the biggest risk, but you are generally getting compensated for it. Whereas at the series A and often at the series B, you're paying much higher prices without a similar amount of de-risking. And I think that's really the key is that, uh, many larger multi-stage funds will invest in A's and B's without really pricing the risk reduction from seed, as you think about that valuation versus the seed valuation. So we always lived in that very early, very risky, miasma, teams forming ideas, gelling, plans codifying. But boy, if you hit it, then you can
0: really hit it. Right. And yeah, it's interesting because there was a, a ton of capital that flooded in over the past few years one of the things that we did at our firm was we were seeing that follow-on rounds were happening increasingly earlier ahead of any de-risking of uh for for, for these companies and so it actually made more sense to allocate the follow-on dollars to, to new companies so we can get more shots on goal and just because these follow-on prices didn't make sense I'm um, i'm curious if You would have advised against that, or or how you think about that for for you if you were starting IA today, given sort of how much capital has flooded into the ecosystem. I think
1: your adaptation makes sense. I think it depends on how horizontal your portfolio is. I think what you know what IA did was severely cut velocity to almost zero, and then would just be wildly selective about even that first check in a market where even those first checks are getting priced at largely rational levels. And I think the current market is kind of bearing that out now that we're in the midst of this correction, um, or one might say rationalization. What I think an adaptive strategy in this environment is for a manager that runs a concentrated portfolio and has skill in helping to assist leadership teams with hard hard questions of, you know, resource allocation. Do you narrow your scope in an environment of scarcity and go deeper, or do you try and go more horizontal and to build brand that way and to kind of believe that you're best positioned for the next phase of abundance, because you've created a broader footprint. Those are really hard questions, but I think. The best opportunities in this current phase aren't necessarily net new companies, but investing dollars in existing companies at depressed prices when the businesses themselves are simply taking longer to gestate because they might be platform type businesses, which As you know, if you're actually building a platform business, I mean, it could take five years to actually create the critical mass. Or if you're, you know, building something that is around, you know, open source or developer tools and you need that community evangelism and you need a large enough user base to get that flywheel going, like these things just take time. But in a market like this, uh, it's very painful to give companies like that the appropriate resources and the time necessary to achieve their potential. So that's when tremendous opportunities exist when it's almost like dislocation in the opposite direction, where the potential of these companies relative to the price is massively skewed in your favor instead of the converse when you're
0: reaching to invest in companies when valuations moving away from it. I see you as a, as a true craftsman investor, you have an idea of what it means to be a good investor, an idea of what it means on how to win and, and you've won. And so that, has only been, you know, confirmed and, and it, you know, works in rational markets better, better than crazy markets, but where it works in all markets. Whereas there are other, I'll give YC and Andreessen as other examples where it's almost like they're playing a different sport. You know, YC in particular is obviously playing a hugely horizontal um, or you know huge, huge high volume game. They have special economics. They they don't invest in the way that, that you invest, um, but they they really focus on sort of the product to on entrepreneurs and this heavy services approach. And and Andreessen at the at the later stage, and they're playing this massive AUM game. And is it, your analysis, hey, different? Like it's a different sport, but they, you know, you can have multiple kinds of winners. I, I've wondered if, if the future venture is going to look more like the, the craftsman uh, approach that has won for so long, or more like the sort of product or platform approach that is a bit newer, but is, you know, uh, creating, a, get, getting a lot of dollars and, and has some, you know, uh, flashy wins. What do you think about that? Hi, Eric, that, that is a fantastic question. And
1: this is one of the times when my being old, And having been through so many cycles and been in so many corners of the financial markets, I think I've actually got pretty reasonable perspective on this. The answer is there is no one prevailing regime. It's going, it's cyclical. It's based upon interest rates, investment alternatives, PR, and a host of other factors. But certainly the most notable is kind of interest rates and macroeconomic environment that drives interest in these, you know, long duration, less liquid asset classes. So I would posit that the venture world is no different than the public equities world when it comes to its shape and how things move up and down and firm types and preferences shift. But if you look at some truly great generational firms that have literally done the same thing, From the from inception, like take Bowpost Group in deep value long short. Okay, so Bowpost has been doing the thing for I think forty years now. Let's say, and you know their relatives' returns would go up in down cycles and go down in up cycles, but net net, if you look at the rate at which capital compounds, and again, I'm not an LP. I just know from being in the hedge fund business like Bow post was always just unwavering in their strategy. I view us in the way in venture in the way that I view Bow post and the hedge fund arena, which is they stayed relatively small. They've generated tremendous returns over long periods of time. They've obviously built a culture of success where they could continue to elevate young talent and to continue to be great stock pickers in all markets. That is what I set out to have IAB. I think Brad and Jesse are carrying that along brilliantly. Um, But I think there will always be the YC types in the world. You know, you could argue Vanguard, right, kicked off that, incredibly horizontal approach to investment management, right? And then you've got these very narrow specialty managers. So I think it's all part and parcel of the same thing, which is there there can be these multiple strategies that are also servicing different types of investors. Like, let's face it, if you're a certain scale of LP, you can't really invest in IA because we're just too small and, and the check size that you could would want to write we simply won't accept. So then Andreessen, with their infrastructure and their org- I mean, they're a corporation, right? It's like, but they are they are institutionally investable with enormous dollars. And if they can, you know, put up good returns, they don't even need to be great returns. Good returns in this multi-product array that they now have then that's great for what many institutions want. YC is much more geared towards not the, the investor, but the founder. And they've created this ecosystem. And if you know, I look at kind of what I would consider their unfair advantage to be at this point is cohort after cohort that have... Uh, Extraordinary individuals that have built some really tremendous companies that then feed back into the ecosystem. And they've done a brilliant job. I mean, think uh, what different people think different things. That's something I respect very highly is that they really have built an ecosystem that is
0: unrivaled in venture. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Now, most venture capitalists are not macro thinkers or don't have the type of experience that, that you do, and, and, but you are a macro thinker. And so when you think about the next few years, and um, obviously no one's a you know, predictor, but you're, you're a student, how do you expect what's going to happen? macro is going to, what kind of ripples is it going to send through the venture ecosystem in terms of what kinds of players it's going to favor, maybe what kinds is going to hurt, or what mental model of macro should, should VCs have as they look at the next few years of, of venture capital? Definitely a defensive posture. Um, I think that,
1: again, so much is driven by uh, rates and global sentiment, long-dated rates, not that policy and look i mean if uh if sofer was 6 and the 30 year was 3 i would feel very differently um but with sofer at 5 and change and the 30 year well above 4 and mortgage rates over 7 for the first time in 40 years like that's that's a tough environment, right? Because we are, as a general matter, in a more risk-off culture when it comes to illiquid assets. You know, in, in liquids, you know, we've seen, you know, the equity markets, the, you know, large mega cap techs had a bid for a while. It's softening now, but, you know, in general, I mean, it's been pretty, pretty good, but long duration assets have generally looked like crap. And that's the intersection of, poor liquidity, and uncertain prospects. So not really knowing how macro is going to affect growth rate, which of course, the two biggest things with a long duration equity like a venture back company is you know, growth rate and interest rates. Those are really the two salient financial factors. So what I had alluded to earlier about the best place to deploy dollars right now is probably in your best companies and to be extremely careful with met new companies to the extent that they're capital intensive. If you back teams that are unbelievably scrappy and can really build a lot for very little, that's and you feel like you've got very strict parameters around which you're willing to write an additional check to continue to fund that development, again, in a, an environment of scarcity, then I think probably the best risk reward is fortifying your high potential companies that you've already gotten to know over years
0: and years and years. Fascinating. And, and give, give my audience a little bit of a, you know, mini macro lesson in terms of, um, close the loop or flesh out more about how higher interest rates or or lower growth rates how that affects the venture ecosystem it, 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 exactly. Kind of t- tie that thread together. Sure. So they both ultimately get
1: to the same concept with which is terminal value and what is the multiple that an investor is willing to put on future cash flows. And when you have attractive, low-risk investment alternatives that are yielding a high rate, and in our case, the highest rate that we've seen again in decades, then cash feels pretty good in a, in a, in a scary world. And that's going to mean that the, the risk premium that you're going to charge on long duration equities is going to be much, much higher. So then we get to growth rate. Well, <laughs> so that means that you're, you need extraordinary growth rate, like the Ten percent month on month, not from C to A or A to B, but from B to N. So something that really has tremendous nonlinear growth, which again is very very hard to find. I mean, there have been companies like a, a Snowflake or something like that that have exhibited these unbelievable, or even for you know for a period, of, a data dog, right? That just crazy crazy growth, even at scale for a period for an extended period of time. Those are companies that. They, they will not trade anywhere near what they would have in a lower rate environment, but they will still trade at premium multiples. But unless you're one of those companies, then growth rate and interest rates are going to drag down that terminal multiple, which is
0: going to drag down the present value of your future cash flows. That's a helpful overview. And, and do you think that interest rates have been artificially low these, pa- these past, um, you know, a f- uh, few decades, my economist friend, Scott Sumner thinks that maybe perhaps they weren't low, maybe perhaps thanks to demographics or productivity or, or other factors, uh, maybe we just have lower rates from now on. I would say yes and no.
1: Now, look, I'm sure your friend is a trained economist. I'm not a trained economist, but I would say it, it, it can't be either or, um, certainly the, you know, global growth rate is slowing down. So global GDP is slowing down as the population explosion slows down. And now we're even seeing in the company that had the greatest growth in history, China, they are, you know, their growth is waning and they're in deep trouble because they've had this massive demographic shift against a wave of overinvestment that's going to have, you know, have ripples across the globe as we're already seeing today. So that's certainly part of it, but it can't be disputed that in just talking about U.S. policy, that the U.S. very intentionally and Western Europe very intentionally ran loose money policies in order to keep interest rates towards zero, especially coming out of the global financial crisis. They had been low before them, but they—they they were not crazy low. But we've had more than a, we had more than a decade of that bubble inflating of literally zero interest rates that made investing in long duration equities and other risk assets so compelling. Um, so you get what exactly what you what you have today, which is the bubble coming out of the balloon incredible pain. I mean, I, I remember I was sitting on a panel with Fred Wilson. I think this is probably in 2010 coming out of the GFC and, you know, what is venture investment going to normalize at on, a, on an annual basis? And we were like, Anna, yeah, maybe like 10 billion, <laughs> 10 billion. I mean, I I was 10x off that one. I mean, and by the way, if if I had known what Fed policy would be, I would not have said 10 billion. Maybe I would have said 30 or 40 billion. I would not have said 10. I would not have thought it could be 100. (laughs) So I was like orders of magnitude off because I could not have foreseen that the Fed would keep rates at zero for almost 15 years.
0: If you let's say you have to make a prediction now about wh- where they will wh- where they will normalize, knowing what you what you know now about you know how the Fed has acted and and what played out, what what prediction would you make? I mean, so I don't again, I just
1: haven't looked at the statistics lately. So I mean, obviously, I mean, I know that venture investment in twenty two and twenty three has fallen tremendously. I don't know what it is now. If you tell me what it is now and what it was at its peak, I could tell you. I I think it's going it's going to be. Significantly lower. I mean, I I just do not think that there's going to be a ton of net new uh, investors coming into venture right now. I think, it, and you can see it. You know, so where where is some of the biggest money going right now? It's going into real assets. It's going into things like sports, or it's going into um, intellectual property like media rights, and I think there's, there are other mega trends. Now, clearly, AI occupies this unusual place in the universe right now where it has largely been immune to the cyclicality and volatility of venture investment. But there aren't too many sectors like that. And there's always one, right? Whether it was clean tech, machine learning, big data, whatever, and now it's AI. Um, so i do i do think that the biggest biggest pockets of capital right now are not really focused on venture
0: right because even with ai it's unclear how many you know s- amazing startup opportunities there will be as opposed to just going to the incumbents
1: i agree with you i like i at right now you know the i don't know how much true white space is left in the venn diagram with you know
0: 200 new circles having been created over the last 18 months and so if the, if if your prediction is correct, what does that mean for these the, the A16Zs, the YC, these massive kind of AUM platforms? Do they do they struggle or do they have to reset their strategy a bit?
1: So I think with with folks like that that already have an embedded LP base and they're just cranking out new fund products, I think they'll be fine because again, they are institutionally investable. I my hypothesis is that these LPs are underwriting these firms for the generation they are not, um, tourist VC investors. And as such, those are not the firms that are going to be hurt. I think net new fund creation is going to be hurt. And if I'm totally honest, Eric, and I, I actually, I said this five years ago, there are too many firms. And when you have taxi drivers and Uber drivers talking about their venture investing in the same way that you know when they talked about you know crypto with Bitcoin at sixty thousand. Again, this is not a new movie. We've seen this movie a thousand times before. You don't, in the same way that you don't need as many banks in the country as we have, you don't need as many seed stage venture funds. You just don't need them.
0: Totally. It's it's you know I'm going to make a joke of an analogy only because you you said you're old. I I, I remember this uh, video around um this kind of veteran or very old man who who looks at the state of america today and he he's very sad he says you know we didn't go to vietnam for this it's kind of this um this meant to be this moving video and I, I, I'm sort of imagining you looking last five years of venture, or, or you know, or maybe about a decade saying, "Oh, you know, I can't believe it, it! It went like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this." <laughs> <laughs>
1: you make me sound like one of those old guys, in that. Ah! I can't believe the industry is <laughs> unfolded this way.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, you
1: know, okay, well, you're right. That is exactly what I would say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, all these players who made all this money, maybe in the wrong way, or I don't know, just. Uh, yeah. Is, is a- that U- kind M- of your a- experience? A- a-
1: like AUM. I mean, th- yeah. that's the thing, man. It's just, I just, I have such a hard time with it. Now look, I, I, again, it's Andreessen is very particular. Like they are a multi-strategy, multi-product institutional investment management firm. They are not a venture firm as far as I'm concerned. So for, forget about them. But then if you look at the, you know, the rest of the industry and you look at what I will, what I believe, is the lack of LP discipline in just signing up for fund three, four, five, six, seven, twelve, fifteen of name your venerable venture firm, and you look at the returns it, it, with it, with a few notable exceptions, they're not good. And I like to me, I never understood that. Now I've, I've never been an institutional LP marshaling dollars of that magnitude, but somehow the GPs were able to create this illusion that, and it, and it can't be true that all of these funds are so special and all of this capacity was so valuable that, well, if you don't jump, if you, if you don't re up, well, then we're going to give it to X and you'll never get to invest with us ever again. The GPs were masterful at that. You're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 20 years in these kinds of funds. You know, which again, I like, I feel so grateful for the LP relationships that we established and cultivated at IA. Because we were extremely focused on getting a set of partners, firstly, who we viewed as true partners, where we wanted them so they could mentor us in ways that we needed help and support. And believe me, we needed a lot, and we still learn a ton from our LPs. But where they, even as large large institutions, viewed a 20, 30, 40, $50 million allocation to IA as being incredibly valuable. And yes, it's not a $200 million allocation to a billion dollar fund, that was, it's huge to us. And look, if we can generate what, you know, what we've generated so far, then that's a lot of absolute returns for these causes that we, we believe very passionately in. So I just think the whole market was so distorted on both the GP and the LP side. And now that reckoning is, is happening. And I'm, even though it's, it's painful, I think it's ultimately a really healthy thing.
0: Yeah. And others like bill gurley have been talking about it for for you know uh for needing to happen for a while and um yeah and so you so you're encouraged by sort of this this you know forced discipline that is going to have to come back for sure you you mentioned crypto i believe that you guys uh you know got into crypto a, a, as well you you know you mentioned sports you guys are focused on sports now and obviously it's a it's, it's both to make money but also a passion project with, with you and your family Any reflections on getting involved in crypto a bit or what you learned about it um, from a meta perspective? And also, uh, then let's talk about sports.
1: I view it in kind of three buckets. There's crypto, NFTs, and Web3. So crypto, just Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever. I traded some of that pretty well. Cool. But like, that was purely a short window in time where I felt like I had a deeply held view about the way things would go, took my gains and stopped, right? For, for me, it's not it's not a religion. It was an asset that had an observable value. It had a trend in the sentiment and I traded against that and made some decent money and then said, okay, I'm at." So that's, that's crypto. Then there's NFTs and projects. My son's, um, Ethan and I spent some time looking at different projects and, and invested in some, and I would say that we did a relatively shitty job, um, pricing those projects rationally. I think we got caught up in some of the hype. And the shifts in sentiment, and it was a great learning experience. That was that for it. And then Web three, more like um, core infrastructure. We've got some investments there that are good, and that's more like venture. Uh, But it's something that you know was this this sphere was kind of the initial engagement with my sons in working together n- now transitioning to sports, I had kind of put a stake in the ground as I was, um, then transitioning out of IA, I had the opportunity to invest in the Miami Marlins. Um, uh, the, uh, ch- the, the now chief commercial officer is my wife's first cousin, somebody I've known since he was seven years old. And so they were really just looking to raise friends and family money from around the table because didn't want to do a capital call during COVID. And it just ended up being a really good opportunity and we're a huge baseball family, so it was kind of the culmination of one of those fantasies that you think will never in a million years happen and, and it happened. And so continue to be you know very involved with, with the team and ownership today. Since then I really codified this thesis around this, uh, what I call the entertainmentification of sports, live sports, sports betting, sports media, sports data, all working together in this kind of network effect, almost, you know, not not like a YC, but in the sense that like we do, we have built this almost like a little Koretsu of are companies having these strategic overlaps where they're actually working together not because they're eberg companies or not because I tell them to, because it's actually great to work with a friendly who is synergistic with what you're doing and you share eberg in common. And so, you know, around uh, the biggest sports um, sports betting conference in the tri-state area, we you know we held an event that 75 people come, a bunch of our companies, some franchise owners, other big investors, sports media, and like, it was amazing. And to see the energy, like, to me, that business feels a lot like going to tech meetups in 2008. Yeah. And so, you know, we've now built this portfolio where, you know, we have baseball team, investor in an MLS team, investor in an f1 racing team wow and and then having these um these sports betting investments sports media sports data that's really where the boys and i are spending our time and it has been
0: and is super fun yeah i can imagine it's um I I at one point wanted to be an NBA player and of course we all reach uh, our limitations uh, there. Then I wanted to be a coach and realized I didn't want to slog for twenty years just to you know maybe have a chance to do something, and now, and now I want to uh, own a, or invest in a team someday. So I'll slog in uh in in startups and and hopefully you know I'll, I'll be where you're saying it twenty years. And you think it's such a compelling opportunity today, or or in terms of why capital is flocking, one because it's entertainmentification, two just because these are scarce assets. Put a little bit of meat on the bones of what why it like should more people be getting into this this space, more investors, more, you know, like our listeners should they be thinking about this? I think so, and I think it's starting to
1: happen. Um, I, I do like Eric. It's so weird, and it almost sounds too strange to be true, but it is true. Every 17 years, I have a feeling like I had a feeling about, you know, going to Wall Street and getting into derivatives. Then I had a feeling about leaving Wall Street and getting into seed stage tech. And then I had a feeling about leaving seed stage tech and going into sports. So this is my, this is my third cicada cycle. (laughs) And, and like every bone in my body is telling me that this is the megatrend of the next generation. Partly it's due to scarcity. But at the and and now you're talking about like sports franchises. So there's different layers to it, obviously, in the same way that there is with any mega trans, like not like seed stage tech, there's layers to seed stage tech and what made it such a compelling opportunity. So certainly like major sports franchises, there is scarcity and there's w- way more ways to promote and monetize and build much broader audiences than even five years ago. So I think that's what continues to drive franchise values, even as cash flows for many aren't great. But asset value continues to go up because of expected growth of those cash flows. Then, then you have all the stuff around live sports, like sports betting, and you know you had DraftKings and FanDuel that in this country that have been around for more than a decade, but they existed in the pre-PASPA. Supreme Court ruling in 2017 that then opened things up. So now you have you know legalized sports betting in more than 30 states, you have Daily Fantasy in pretty much 50 states, and it's just the, the whole TAM has exploded. And the reality is, with the intersection of the kind of social tools that people use today, and sports betting and the ubiquity of live sports now being accessible on your on your devices, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, multi-screen. Uh it has created this even deeper engagement with the live sports themselves to be able to bet on them and share with your friends. It's like no, it's like buying a movie ticket, right? This isn't DGen betting. This is entertainment betting. And it's just becoming another part of the entertainment experience. And then, so there's all that. And then it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have this thirst for sports, the majors don't provide a full calendar up and down of programming. Well, what then? Well, what about the rise of alternative sports? And now you have all of these niche sports coming in. By the way, when I say niche, there could be tens of millions of followers on social, like World Surfing League. Let me tell you, man. Those are passionate people, right? WSL, it's a thing or PBR, professional bull riding. I and mean, it's unbelievable, Eric. It's all over the place and it's team ownership. It's media rights. It's branding. It's merch. It's betting. It's everything. So in any event, you can see, I'm very excited about this. And, and this is where, this is literally where I'm spending almost all my time these days from a business perspective.
0: Uh, that's very exciting that's a a great note to to wrap on that's an overview of a, of a space i hadn't considered a, a ton despite being a big uh, big fan of it so excited for for me and my listeners to to dive deeper into it uh roger thanks so much for for coming to the podcast and sharing your enthusiasm and your earned secrets and wisdom uh with us my pleasure eric thanks so much for having me turpentine vc is a podcast from turpentine the network behind moment of zen and econ 102 If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple store or rate us on Spotify. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.